Welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, brought to you by XS Sites. That's letter X, the letter S, and the word site.com, part of the concealedcarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Today, we'll be talking about Campus Safety Alliance. We bring you this podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by the ConcealedCarry.com Firearm Instructor Network. ConcealedCarry.com is always looking for quality firearm instructors across the country to join the network. As a network instructor, you can take advantage of ConcealedCarry.com's advertising platform to fill your classes. Visit class.concealedcarry.com and click on instructor to learn more and see if it would be a good fit for you. Again, visit class.concealedcarry.com for more information. Today, we are joined by Morgan Ballas from Campus Safety Alliance. Welcome, Morgan. How are things going today? Oh, it's going great. Thank you so much for having me on. Great. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast today because I think uh, the Campus Safety Alliance is, a, is an interesting organization. But before we get into talking about that, can you give our listeners a little bit of your background and you know what kind of brought you to uh, forming this organization? Yeah, so in, in 2011, I was back home in Tucson, Arizona. Um, by that time, I, I was in the Marine Corps as an, as an infantry um, section leader. I, I was in the Marine Corps for nearly seven years at that point. And uh, my mom was at a Safeway where Congresswoman Gabby O. Giffords was meeting her constituents. And as we all know, that event did not end as planned. Um, There was a shooter, an active shooter at that event. My mom survived the encounter. She actually saved the life of Ron Barber, who would go on to replace Congresswoman Giffords um, there in our district. And I had went to high school with the shooter. So like most families impacted by these tragedies, I, I became obsessed with the event. I wanted to know as much as I could. How did it happen? Who was this individual? Where did he get the guns? Just all the what ifs you could think of. Um, and then a year later, we as a nation would experience Sandy Hook Elementary uh, and that just absolute incredible tragedy. My wife at that time was a first grade teacher herself. My son was in kindergarten and it just shook me to my core. And that's when I decided I was going to dedicate my life to understanding these tragedies and events um, and helping prepare individuals and organizations and with a specific focus on supporting K-12 schools um, in that area. Yep. And I think firearm instructors, trainers uh, hold a special place in there because we're around um, shooting shooters all the time, firearm owners, and by us going along and what we do and what we know can help influence um, what people's attitudes are about these kind of situations and also how to go along and react appropriately for it. Um, can you go along and, and tell our audience a little bit about uh, when, when you go along and go in and talk to the, these schools and such, you know, what do you focus on? As Campus Safety Alliance, we're, we're a K-12 emergency management consulting firm. So we really help them with anything emergency management related. But oftentimes, because this area is so new or there's so many different opinions or ideas on what should be happening, our focus tends to get directed towards preparing them um, for a targeted attack. 
And it, it really depends on the school, but overall, our process begins with doing a, um, an infrastructure assessment. So we're determining, you know, if there's gaps in their actual phys, uh, physical security structures. We then review their policies and procedures, and we try to identify, again, if there's any gaps between what they have in place and what the state or federal recommendations are. Uh, and then from that point, we start to observe everything they have in process. So we go to their trainings, we observe their drills. And during this entire time, we're just collecting data to understand where they're at and how we can best support them. Uh, and then depending on what support those sites need, we may come in and we may do training, we may help them revise policies or make recommendations towards infrastructure. Uh, but in general, that, that's really our process there's times when schools come to us and they say, hey, we just want training. And I'll tell them I can't do that because if you don't have policies and procedures that support your training or empower your staff, then it does no one any good. If your infrastructure isn't reflected in your training, then what I do isn't any good. Um, but it, it's really that complete process that makes us successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's no different than... In my mind, if you went along and put a school resource officer out in the front parking lot, that will take care of one dimension of the problem, but right. not necessarily the dimension inside the walls and having the proper uh, mindset. I think before we you know, started recording, you were talking about the crisis mindset, which I thought really kind of encapsulates what you do because you don't try to replace like the Alice training. You don't try to replace the training they're already doing. You're trying to go along and get them to have a broader sense of how to manage the crisis appropriately because no matter what it is whether it's an active shooter or a fire earthquake tornado something that happens that school is going to be in crisis for a amount of time until sufficient resources get there in order to help help manage it all and you know i think that wraps things around um in, in my mind at least you know what what you do quite a bit yeah, when we're talking, you know, active shooters specifically, especially in schools, it's a very difficult topic to discuss. Um, it's not like other emergencies where, you know, it's the roll of the dice. You're talking about someone actively and consciously trying to target our children in their safe space. And because it's such an emotional topic, because it's so politically divisive, there's a lot of challenges when it comes to training. You know, I would say, 90% of what I do with schools in, in terms of active shooter training specifically is helping the staff to understand one, that these are necessary, um, but two, that the programs, whatever we're introducing, that they're evidence-based, that there's research that supports them, that there are best practice recommendations from agencies all across the United States that support these programs. Um, so a lot of times what I end up doing is exactly what you said is, Yes, we're talking about an active shooter, but what we're really discussing is a crisis mindset. What happens to us psychologically, physiologically, whether a building collapses or someone is actively trying to harm us, how do we get through that process more quickly? And how do we select an option for our safety based on very limited information? And at the end of the day, those are the things that we're really trying to promote and instill, whether it's staff or students. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. When you look at, you know, schools that have hundreds, if not thousands of students in there, um, you know, a fire department, you know, if it's got a, you know, five minute response time to it, that's going to seem, seem like eternity and having the proper mindset 
to get in there um, and manage it, before, you know, until the fire department gets there and, or until additional resources get there is uh, definitely, um, you know, something that's extremely important for it. Um, let me ask you this. We were talking uh, beforehand about lockdown drills and different things. You know, they've become very, um, very routine for a lot of schools. But what do you see the problem with just doing uh, lockdown drills uh, the, from? The, I'm going to say good news, but it's really not good news because the fact that we have people targeting our students at school is, is a horrible thing. But the good news is, is that more than 95% of schools across the United States at a minimum are doing lockdown drills. The problem with lockdown and a lockdown only response is it was never created for the active shooter phenomenon that we're experiencing. Lockdown came out of the uh, late 70s out of the LA Unified School District and it was specifically designed for drive-by shootings. It was an external threat, both in the location of the assailant and that assailant's relationship with the site. So what they actually used to call them um, drive-by drills when they would host them. Um, some people refer to them as reverse fire drills, but essentially you get people inside, you would get them beneath the window seals, and then you would, you know, cover the windows. The phenomenon that we are experiencing and that we've experienced for more than two decades, but specifically since Columbine in 1999, is the, an active shooter who's an insider threat, meaning they're overwhelmingly one of my students and the threat materializes in what should have been my safe space. So a lockdown only approach only teaches staff and students to duck and cover and get under their desk or to hide within a classroom. Well, that strategy might work, but not if the person who's there to harm you is already within your safe space. Mm -hmm. So it is not a strategy that's supported by the evidence. Case studies do not support a lockdown only strategy. Um, there is tons of um, best practice recommendations that promote what's known as a multi-option response. So having the ability to flee campus or counter the attack or secure a safe space. Um, there's actually emerging research right now that specifically compares lockdown only to an options-based response and um, the timeline of the events, as well as the number of victims as well. And that emerging research supports giving uh, or empowering stakeholders with the opportunity to select an option that's best for their safety. Yeah, one of the things I went along and, you know, I support, you know, having multi-options is when you look at the uh, military and you look at how they respond to things, they make sure that, you know, all the way down to the infantry troop knows how to operate every weapon system that that platoon, that, that organization has. And that's so that, you know, in case their Lieutenant captain, um, is, uh, becomes, you know, disabled, you know, not able to command anymore. They're able to continue executing upon their mission. And I think that's part of what we've got to do, or, you know, organizations have to keep their minds around is just because, you know, the principal can't get to the PA and tell people to do specific things, the teachers and even the students have to have some autonomy to say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I need to go and do this to keep myself, my students uh, safe. Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, I think so much of, of, of what we do when we're supporting schools or whether it's a faith voice organization or, or we train military units as well, um, that empowerment piece is so important. Uh, we, we collect so much data when we go to schools before we even make a recommendation. And overwhelmingly, I will be interviewing or surveying teachers and I'll say, okay, 
there is a fire literally right in front of you on your campus. You know it's a fire. What are you going to do? And the number one response I get is I'm going to contact an administrator because no one has given them the direct authority. We would think it's common sense, but no one's given them the direct authority to pull that fire along or to send out the message that there's a fire. Um, And I I see it across the board with the sites that I work with. And it's one of the biggest things that we end up doing is completely revamping their communication procedures and under what conditions certain people have certain authorities and how to utilize the PA system. Um, And all those things are are really important when we're talking about empowering. And especially when we're talking about, you know, active shooter events, what we know from the data is that the average K-12 active shooter incident lasts two to five minutes and your average law enforcement response is six to 12 minutes. Um, Nearly 80% of all K-12 active shooter events end before external law enforcement is even on scene. Mm -hmm. So these are very rare, but very violent and very quick incidents. So we have to, we have a moral and legal and ethical responsibility to empower stakeholders um, to make a decision that they feel is best for their safety. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And uh, the one thing when people need to realize, you know, when you're talking about, you know, six to 12 minute response time from uh, law enforcement, that's after they get the call also which, you know, you've yeah. got to get somebody, you, somebody's got to get on the phone. They've got to make the call. They've got to relay the information properly. And then some dispatcher has to go along and get the information and then get, and then get the proper resources uh, going toward that direction. Now we would hope it'd be faster, but at the same time, I always tell people, you know, add, you know, three plus minutes onto whatever the best uh, response time is. And that'll tell you from the time it starts to the time that, you know, things would actually, you know, somebody would show up on your door. And most of the time that's, you know, well over five minutes, if not 10 minutes. And that's, uh, that's where things get really scary when you think about these kind of events. Yeah. My, my friend, uh, Don Allwells, he, he, he's with, he does a lot of work with ILEDA and NTOA and he, he talks about victim time versus cop time. And I love this. He talks yep. about it and it's such a powerful thing. He says, victim time starts when the first shots go, right? Cop time starts after the call is made, after the officers get the information, after they show up, you know, after they make entry, identify the, all those things that cop time is already behind the power curve. Mm-hmm. Um, when, uh, there's an organization called alert, it's the advanced law enforcement, um, rapid response training. They're, they're out of Texas and they, they have helped co-produce these reports with the FBI over the past, uh, 20 years. And, um, in the alert data, their data showed that officers were on scene or had responded in the majority of incidents. When I started to really examine the case studies, what I found is they didn't differentiate between officers that were already on scene when the violence began versus those that were external to the site. Mm-hmm. And when you actually break down, because an SRO can be a victim just as much as a teacher, right? Right. So when you actually differentiate those things, what you find is what I stated over earlier is that overwhelmingly nearly three quarters of these incidents end before external law enforcement even arrived to your campus. Um, so as an organization, as, as an academic, as, as a family impacted by these incidents, to me, the data and the research is so important to make sure that we're using that to drive, not just training our students and our staff, but also the tactics, techniques, and procedures of law enforcement and medical first responders. 
most definitely. Because uh, one of the things that I, I noted um, watching the Parkland shooting uh, get reported on TV is that the uh, emergency medical was not going inside the schools because they had not cleared the schools and people were students were bringing other students out of the school and that's one of the things that you need to be prepared for also you know normally would expect paramedics to come into the school and and take the the injured out but uh, in an incident like this you really need to understand that they're not going to go along put more lives in jeopardy um, until they know the area is safe and that's one of those that again you've got to wrap your mind around it to really understand how the crisis is unfolding to figure out where you can best uh, fit in and, and do your best to persevere and survive i think it's important when we're training individuals to understand what those responses realistically look like um, because you're, you're completely right I, i'm working with the school district in southern california um, and the area itself experienced both the Santana and Granite Hill shooting back to back in the year 2000. So there are teachers in the district that were students during those incidents. And we were doing a training last week where one of the teachers specifically said, my most vivid memory of that incident was officers running past students that were shot because that's not their job mm -hmm. at that moment. Um, I think also this is where as a law enforcement trainer and someone that has the opportunity to present at conferences across the United States, one of the biggest things I try to do is bring in the research to help drive home that as first responders, we need to differentiate between K-12 active shooter events and other active shooter events. And we need to use that information and the research to, again, drive our practices. For example, there has only been a single officer that has even been injured across 44 active shooter events in the past two decades. Um, and that was an SRO um, out of Texas who did his job, responded to the shooter, was able to distract and keep him distracted. And there were no more victims after he made contact with the suspect. There's not been a single medical first responder that has been injured or killed in a school active shooter incident. And as you know, as of right now, this isn't true that it happens, but the concept is that single officer response, if you're the first one on scene, you immediately go in, um, you create what we call warm zone. So areas that are completely clear, but are safe for medical first responders to operate in with law enforcement escort. In theory, overwhelmingly, we know that doesn't happen, right? It's just something we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good. But the problem with that is that Parkland, is not San Bernardino. It's not Dallas, right? Mm -hmm. Those are completely different threats. So we need to sit back and, and examine, is this really the best policy for these type of, of incidents? Or should we give medical first responders the same autonomy that we give law enforcement? And if they want to take that risk to start assessing victims, then they should. Because what we see in the data specific to active shooter events is that individuals that are killed are overwhelmingly shot in the head, chest, or upper back. Right. And this happens because we have victims that aren't actively resisting. You have an assailant at extremely close distance who's there to kill or injure as many people as possible. So he shoots them where they are more likely to die. Mm -hmm. That means that those individuals have maybe a 10 minute window to hope to survive their wounds. Right. And we talked about cop time. Cop time happens five minutes after the incident occurs. So our 10 minute window is already cut in half. Right. Um, so we, we just need to use the research and the data to really consider 
how do we adapt for this specific phenomenon? Yeah. Well, Morgan, I got a question for you. Um, great information. You've done a lot of good research. You, uh, you know, statistics are great to hear about because it really helps to reinforce, you know, in, in my mind and hopefully in the listeners, other instructors' minds about what's going on. But what can instructors, trainers do short of doing something like you're doing to help um, in, in this in these situations? Um, this is something that I'm extremely passionate about that I think we fail horribly, but is a huge opportunity for growth. Um, what I didn't share with your, with your audience. I'm, I'm also a firearms instructor myself. I run a firearms company in, in Southern California. Um, what we know is that somewhere around 80% of all K-12 active shooters, they get their firearm from their own home, the home of a friend or a family member. So they're stealing the firearm right? They're not of the legal age to purchase one. So they steal one overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not true in all instances, but in the majority of cases, what that tells me is that as a gun owner, I have a responsibility and an opportunity to help prevent 80% of all active shooter events or K-12 active shooter events. And it's a discussion that within the firearms community, we just have to be honest with ourselves, right? The challenge with this is that none of us looks at our own child. My son is 12. None of us looks at our own child and has the slightest hint that they would be capable of something so horrendous, right? But any parent that has experienced a child who has harmed themselves has said the same thing in that aspect at some point. So we just have such an opportunity to be honest as trainers and to talk about, hey, yeah, I'm going to train you how to stop a threat in your home, but here's the considerations of how you store your firearm, at least when you're not present, mm -hmm. right? If you're present in your home, then maybe those conditions are a little bit different. Um, but it's something we really have to look on and we have to reflect. We've hosted seminars in our own community that talk about the legal consequences for parents. If your student makes a threat about a gun or posts a picture of one of your guns, um, and what are the legal consequences for you criminally and um, civilly in those situations? So it, it's something I, I, I am so passionate about that I think we really need to discuss more. Yeah, and I think, you know, no matter whether you're in California or in Michigan, Florida, Texas, you know, wherever it is, as firearm owners, it is our responsibility as firearm owners to make sure that those uh, firearms, weapons, uh, rifles, shotguns, pistol, whatever it is, are not used by people that are not authorized. And that could be kids. You know, that could be, you know, a two, three-year-old, which would be catastrophic. Um, but it could also be a 12, 13, 16, 17-year-old kid. And it also could be, you know, our parents, you know, if they're going through, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, some debilitating kind of disease like that, or it could be that relative that's going through and having an addiction for it and is looking for a way of making quick money. It's our responsibility to make sure that unauthorized people do not get access to it and having them locked up, having them, um, stored properly, you know, in the old, uh, gun cabinet, you know, in the, uh, in, in the living room, you know, nice glass front in you know, nice decorated, uh, carved wood, everything else like that. It's great. You know, gr you know, that was the way grandpa stored them and he was proud of storing them that way. So everybody could see, but in today's world to where, you know, we've got people in our house that we've got things going on. I think we probably almost all agree that that's probably not the best because it would just take, you know, a, a six-year-old 
you know, 30 seconds to find something heavy enough to break that glass. And then they've got access uh, to, you know, a firearm that we don't intend for them to do it, you know, keep it under lock and key or put them into quick access safes, different things along those lines to prevent them being used um, inappropriately. Yeah, I think another way that we have framed the conversation, because right, how we present things are important. Um, A lot of us, if I say, hey, your kid could be the next school shooter, you're going to get defensive and you're not going to come to the table to even talk. As trainers, another way that we have found to frame the conversation is, okay, who are your kids bringing into your home? Do you truly know those other children that are in your house? Do you know what they're capable of? And mm-hmm. as you know, as your kids get old, older, they get more responsibility. You let them have friends over when you're not there, or they start to bring friends over, maybe friends you haven't even met. Mm-hmm. So, or you know, don't know their family, family, at least, you know, well, yeah. those, those so, people, you know, distant, uh, distant friends. Yeah. So framing the conversation around, okay, let's think about not your child, but someone else's child and you don't know their intentions. What can you do if not being there, especially in order to prevent or deny them access to, to those firearms. So um, it's important conversation. And I think at its heart, it shows that we're not these, you know, this vision of gun owners who everybody should have a gun. It's no, we understand the role we play in this phenomenon Let's do our responsible part to, to help minimize it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And uh, as fire instructors, we're on the front line there talking to gun owners all the time and especially new gun owners. And it's go, being able to go along and take those uh, new gun owners and instilling the proper attitude with yeah. them um, because that's, that's going to carry on for a long time and hopefully avoid uh, tragedies because let's put it this way. We'll never know how many as fire instructors tragedies we've helped to uh, avoid because we educated people in the proper way of uh, storing things or denying access to those that are not authorized. But at the same time, we'll def- definitely know when we haven't fulfilled that part because there'll be a tragedy that we'll be sitting there and you know shaking our heads and saying you know what more could i have done to prevent that family from going through that tragedy it's a good point that's a powerful point that's good well that's uh yeah instructors out there listen to what morgan's got to say think about that and uh it's not to go along and try to make uh, guns inaccessible to people and the uh, responsible people in the proper situations but it's going along and really thinking about you know the unauthorized people which um think about it you know every family's got the got those relatives that you know when you know uncle joe comes over everybody's kind of like okay you know let's make sure that you know we you know not, the good china is not out because uncle joe's always dropping something or you know yeah. the, you know different people in the family every family you know has a variety of that hey morgan got a question for you We've been asking all our guests this this year can you name an influential instructor or a book that you'd recommend to our instructors um two books that I have really over this past year just really resonated with me. The first one is Everyday Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. Um, You can find it on Audible. It's actually free on Audible right now. Uh, Me and Free go way back. So that was definitely an incentive for me. And what, what he's really talking about in this book is how do we put ourselves in a position to need to survive? And what is the difference between survivors and non survivors? What are, what is their mental um, aspect and mental fortitude that help them overcome these just crazy situations from avalanches to being stuck at sea? Um, and, and it's extremely powerful. And the, the other one is Amanda Ripley's Unthinkable. And this is another great book uh, where she 
is using 9-11 as, as the case study and just talking about, again, the difference in individuals' mindsets and really the physiological and psychological reactions to stress. He just has so many great um, talking points within that book that discuss these things that any of us go through during a crisis. And I lean on these books, again, even if I'm doing active shooter training, because it is what is the mindset during a crisis? How do we get through that process that we're all going to experience more quickly um, in order to get to that action phase? Yeah, definitely. I know when I'm teaching my students, I'm, you know, I talk to them about, you know, yes, there's a way of holding a, a gun. There's a proper way of pressing the trigger, aligning the sights and everything else like that. But we've also got to have the proper mindset in order to, you know, know when to use it, when not to use it. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, when, when's the time that you need just to run as fast as you can away from that situation? Cause there's no good, good situation uh, with you staying around there. And those are all kind of options. And you've got to be think, able to think about all those uh, different things very quickly for it. And those sounds like some good books that I'm going to add to my reading list. Yeah, one of the, one of the biggest challenges in the K twelve active shooter space is you know what is age appropriate, what is developmentally appropriate because a discussion with a first grade class is much different than a discussion with a high school class, and I think one of the differences, at least you know when I was growing up, was in in my house we had John Walsh and we had very difficult discussions, right? Um, and I was almost abducted when I was seven years old. And the reason I wasn't abducted was because we watched America's Most Wanted and we had really hard discussions about, hey, there are people out there that want to harm you as a child. Mm-hmm. Here's what you do. Um, and it was that mindset of being aware of my surroundings and taking specific actions that I had thought of before, what we call mental mapping, that I truly believed saved my life. Um and, and that's what we're trying to do at the end of the day, whether we're working with students or a congregation is to help people have that mental map created to plant those seeds. So that way they can increase memory recall at the critical moment. Yep. Uh, you know, you don't have time to read a book at a critical moment, but you do you know, have the ability to you know search your mind. And if you and if mind's already gone there, you've got the you've got a better than average chance of uh, surviving at that point. So that's good. Well, where can instructors and our listeners find more information about uh, Morgan Ballas? Yeah, if you if you're interested in um, emergency management or, or some of the things we might be able to support you or your organization with, you can find us at campus-safety.us. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at campus safety dad. Super, super. I'll put those in the show notes for our uh, listeners if they're uh, interested and find more information about what you're doing and uh, maybe having you come to their place of uh, school or uh, congregation or wherever uh, you feel that they might be good. Well, appreciate you coming on today, Morgan. And uh, that's a wrap for this episode. And I have a few shout outs to our listeners and guests who I met up this last weekend in West Bend, Wisconsin. Shout out to Beth, Phil, Daryl, Asim. Alondo, Katie, Zach, Jorge, Chris, and Aaron. My apologies if I forgot you, but it's very humbling when I get to meet so many of the listeners in one place. And it's great to know that I've been helping you out with the podcast. Now for a few requests, visit podcast.concealedcarry.com to enter in our weekly prize giveaway. This week's podcast winner is Danny, and he won a SWAT T tourniquet. You can't win without entering, and your entries do not carry over from week to week. Next week's prize is a SWAT T tourniquet, and you can register for the giveaway at podcast.concealedcarry.com. 
Remember to check out the Guardian Conference for September 17th to the 19th in Oklahoma City. For an opportunity to take training from guests we've had on the podcast, improve yourself and training you can offer your students. Check out our website and search over our 100 episodes covering topics for trainers. Share this episode on social media and encourage others to listen to it and subscribe. If you have any ideas for new episodes, suggestions on guests to have, or feedback, please email us at ftp at concealcarry.com. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having insurance coverage. Remember, use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.